Good afternoon. It's Friday the 1st of March 2024, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Cold News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me today by video link, we have Ben Rubin and Debbie Evans. Now we're going to get uh, started with the Rochdale uh, by-election results. So let's just bring it on screen and uh, have a look and see what the final result was. Uh, George Galloway uh, returns to the House of Commons uh, for the first time in quite some time uh, with 39.7% of the vote. Uh, David Tully, who was an independent, uh, obtained 21.3% of the vote. And this really should be uh, a very positive uh, result for uh, anybody that's considering standing in the general election as an independent uh, because uh, he beat the Tories, the Labour Party, the Dem Liberal Democrats and the Reform Party uh, into second place and uh, ran a very close race with George Galloway, which I think uh, is uh, hopefully shows a positive sign for uh, the coming months. Uh, but let's have a look and see what George Galloway said. Uh, he said, Keir Starmer, this is for Gaza. You will pay a high price for the role that you've played in enabling, encouraging and covering for the catastrophe presently ongoing uh, in occupied Gaza in the Gaza Strip. Uh, so he very much seeing this as a result, uh, a vindication or a, uh, a, an acknowledgement by the electorate in Rochdale uh, that what's going on in the Middle East is uh, genocide and therefore in support of that. So let's just bring uh, David Tully on screen. Uh, here he is. Uh, and uh, he is basically not a politician. And this is quite interesting. He's uh, just a member of the general public who decided to stand as an independent. He owns uh, a, a car repair center. Um, and uh, well, the video clips that I've seen of him speaking at public meetings, He's quite nervous. He's certainly not experienced. He's not a tra traditional politician at all. Uh, and uh, this seems to be a very strong message being sent to the mainstream political parties uh, that if, okay, we didn't want to vote for G George Galloway, we did, didn't, also didn't want to vote for the mainstream political parties and we've chosen an independent to vote for. I think that is a very clear signal there. Uh, Richard Tice was a bit upset with the result. Uh, and he made a statement via GB News this morning and then also following up on social media uh, as to why the uh, Reform Party hadn't done so well. Let's just have a listen to this. Now the polls have closed, people across the United Kingdom need to know the truth about this election campaign and the implications for our country and our democracy. To suggest that a parliamentary election in this country has not been a truly free and fair election is a very serious allegation indeed. Unfortunately, the behaviour of certain candidates and their supporters in this contest fall very far short of our traditional democratic standards. What we've witnessed and experienced in Rochdale is deeply disturbing. Our candidate and campaign team has been subjected to racist death threats, racist abuse, refused entry to hustings in council buildings, had to be relocated for their own safety, suffered daily intimidation and slurs. I've already removed all of my staff from this count. Now, he went on to say that uh, he was concerned about the size of the postal vote, so he's trying to play the Trump game here. The difference is that uh, the Reform Party basically didn't have any chance of winning this seat in Rochdale. Uh, Trump, on the other hand, uh, 
might have had a chance uh, or probably did have a chance at the last general election in the United States. So I think there's a difference there. Um, but the point here is, or the question that I would ask at this point is, if it's true that the Reform Party was receiving these types of, uh, this type of abuse and death, including death threats, why was nothing mentioned about this in the run-up to the vote itself? Uh, why were the police not involved? Or at least we haven't heard of any of that kind of thing going on. I would have thought GB News would have been covering that in detail in the run-up to this, but he's chosen uh, to make this statement after the event. So the question is why? And it's interesting, the statement that he's making, that uh, people were at risk and that there's a threat to democracy. Because, of course, we've heard this story before. We heard it. Uh, we showed it on the, the on previous UK column news programs uh, from the House of Commons. And, uh, well, we have Penny Mordaunt uh, in a second to, to reinforce this. But before we get to that point, let me just bring this on screen, because if you notice the lower third on GB News there, it said, uh, by-election results imminent, and underneath that, voter turnout in Rochdale at 39.7%, down from 60.1% in 2019. Now, there's nothing unusual about that. In fact, in the last couple of uh, by-elections that have been held in recent weeks, 37% uh, turnout at Kingswood, a 38% turnout at Wellingborough. So this is absolutely normal. So why would GB News be attempting to highlight this? Are they attempting to suggest that the lower voter turnout was because of death threats that were made and maybe intimidation and people being concerned to come and vote? Uh, that seems to me to be a possibility, but uh, there's nothing unusual about a 39.7% turnout at a by-election. But remember, what, here's well, let, let's uh, bring Penny Mordaunt uh, on screen because she was replying to uh, a question in the House of Commons. Uh, let's have a listen to what she had to say. Um, and I would just caution him also just to reflect uh, with the things that have been said uh, about uh, his own behaviour, what he does on social media, the security measures that have had to be stepped up for honourable members in this place in the wake of some of his social media tweets and questions in this House. Whatever I, uh, my disagreements with the honourable gentleman, I will always stand ready to get answers from departments uh, and assist the honourable gentleman in his work, but I'm going to call out on every occasion uh, when he is doing things that are, I think, a danger to our democracy and also the safety and security of members of this House. So my point here is that anybody who is attempting to uh, speak out on various issues that, that certain people don't agree with are being uh, labelled as being threatening and so on. I think this is a very dangerous position to be heading in if we're saying that uh, we've got to keep certain people quiet because they're a threat to democracy, uh, just because we maybe don't agree with them on certain issues. Uh, I think that's quite a dangerous situation. Um, the other issue is uh, this. Uh, I believe this is an attack on us as individuals and the decisions that we make. Uh, and it's a, a government attack. And we've got to ask questions when, when we're hearing same narratives from certain players, uh, from government and from other people, um, is there something broader going on here? We've heard of the term uh, deep event. And is that what we're witnessing here? Because the general public in the UK, it's in the military doctrine for the UK, are considered a threat. Let's from, just remind ourselves of that. This is the integrated operating concept, which is Ministry of Defence doctrine. Um, home is no longer a secure sanctuary, is how they view the situation. The UK public is no longer a safe 
uh, institution, let's call it, for the powers that be. Uh, and so we're hearing this narrative being increasingly built uh, that there is a danger to our democracy from, from us. And I think this is something that we've got to really keep in mind here uh, when we hear this type of rhetoric from various people. Uh, ben, just very quickly, I'm going to give you the opportunity to comment on that because I realize what I've said is potentially difficult for some people. Um, I'd just be interested in what you think. There appears to be a concerted attempt to undermine democracy in the name of democracy. That's what seems to be going on at the moment. And, and you know, we, we talk about this almost every week. I'm sure this was brought up last week as well. Um, the, 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 the political classes, not just the politicians, but the uh, bureaucratic and um, sort of civil service ecosystem that surrounds them, apparently don't think that they should be accountable for anything. Right. And um, that's as undemocratic as, I can, as you can possibly imagine. Hundred percent. So let's let's move on with this attack on democracy, which isn't coming from the general public and isn't coming even from George Galloway. It is coming from the likes of the fate of Britain. Yes. Well, it's coming from above. I think that's the, the most important thing. It's not coming from the ground up. It's coming. It's being disseminated down through the superstructure, through the media, through the political classes, through the the philanthropic groups, and also kind of coming through the art world as well. And you mentioned this um, thing, the fate of Britain. Um, this uh, took place in Manchester on the 25th, uh, 22nd to 25th of February. It's a four-day celebration of collaboration and imagination in the face of the great challenges of our time from the climate crisis to the cost of living crisis. Nothing is off the table. And this is really a coalescence of the art world, hard left-wing politics, dodgy philanthropic money, um, people really looking to radically transform Britain. I mean, there's a real push towards a total wholesale transformation of the country and really subverting democracy in the name of democracy, as, as we just kind of touched on a moment ago. So um, Fate of Britain was organised by these two people, Claire Farrell, who is one of the founders of Extinction Re Rebellion and an artist. Um, and then Brian Eno on the right there, who is a kind of Uber producer, um, musician. He worked with David Bowie and has also become a very high profile activist and has been very involved in pushing forward things like um, citizens' assemblies, which we'll talk about a bit more in a moment. Um, now, they've started this thing called Hard Art, right, which is. Um, uh, it's, it's like a prepackaged art movement that these two have started pushing out there. And they're doing it because they see, as Claire Farrell puts it, that the world that we're in is self-terminating. And it's not working for that many people in many ways. So we want to build a new one. We want to build a new world, right? We want to transform things and, um, and, and, and do so in, in quite a radical way. Here's Brian Eno talking about uh, the same topic. It's funny that I haven't been thinking of audiences at all. I haven't been thinking of the people who come to the fate of Britain as audiences. That it's interesting when you use that word because I realized that wasn't in my mind. I imagined people who were taking part in something. What I, what I hope people will find is that they'll come in and they'll see a lot of things happening and think, 
wow, I could do that. That's the most empowering thing. I remember when I was a kid and I first saw a painting by Mondrian. It, it was my life-changing experience, really, because I, it was when I realized I wanted to be an artist. And the reason was because I saw those pictures and I thought, I could do that. <laughs> and I'm going to. Um, and I think that's, what hap that's the way a lot of people become artists. And becoming an artist is actually, you know, that seems like a, a kind of airy-fairy thing to do. But it's really saying, I can make something. I can create something new. I can create something that never existed before. There's a really interesting term he used there, which is airy-fairy. And I don't want to be dismissive of the fate of Britain completely, actually. I think there's a lot of people who are involved in these events and in this movement who are doing so for the right reasons, actually. They want to build a better future. And I think it's quite clear that the nation that we're in currently is massively dysfunctional. I just question whether this is the right approach or whether artists who are great at creating concepts and visuals and um, uh, uh, sort of flights of fancy are the people to be deciding on the future of the country, right? It's actually a very complex thing that needs to be addressed here. It's not just about how things are presented, how they look. Um, what have they done? They've created their own flag. So actually they see themselves in some way as separate from Britain, actually. I think the symbology here is really important. Uh, the fate harks back to the glory days of the trade union movement of the 60s and the 70s. You can see this image here of one of the events, all the banners and the flags hanging from the ceiling, calls for strike action. Uh, there's one about the anti-Nazi league there, you can see. Um, so this is clearly rooted in a very strong tradition. Unfortunately, it's quite ironic, given what we know sits behind a lot of the politics that these groups are pushing. Some of the work on display was really quite powerful. I actually know people who were personally involved in delivering things at this event as well. So, you know, I don't want to be dismissive out of hand. And as I said, I think that a lot of this is coming from the right place. There's this great piece here from Manchester Street Poem, which is an organisation run by and for the homeless in Manchester, they invited people to come in and collaborate around the creation of a piece of installed artwork. I thought this was really neat, actually. Um, how was all this funded? Because it's quite lavish, actually, and it's very heavily backed by the public sector. So you've got Manchester City Council and the Arts Council England are actively involved in funding this, but also a bunch of philanthropic groups, including... Bloomberg Philanthropies, are quite why Michael Bloomberg, former mayor of New York, is backing this event in Manchester, I don't know. And the Paul Hamlin Foundation, who's been on my radar for a while because of the involvement that they have with My Life, My Say, which is the Tony Blair-aligned youth charity. Um, so there's a bunch of money sitting around this stuff that is extremely questionable. You've also got the UN there. And remember, the UN think that they own the science around climate change and the IPCC report, which is being used to drive most of the activity happening around climate action globally, is from the United Nations. Uh, there is uh, the, the, the UN body involved here, though, is called UNBOSI, Board of Significant Inspiration. 
which is quite interesting. It's a, they focus on human genius. It's really quite a sort of niche and oddball thing for the UN to be talking about. But um, as I said before, they're really, really driving hard on citizens' assemblies and participatory democracy. You know, so there were numerous events focused on that specific topic. There was this bluffer's guide to the what, the why, and the how of citizens' assemblies. They then had a case study showcase on the world's first global assembly, which ran on the back of one of the COP meetings a few years ago. And they really are coming out and saying that um, if we run a panel of 100 people globally, that is somehow representative of the world population. I mean, it's, it's really complete nonsense. And to me, this is why it's a total subversion of the democratic process. You can't say anything useful about global opinion, really, of 8 billion people from a 100-person sample size. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, another one here, the future of democracy in a time of crisis, a crisis that's been largely constructed by the people behind this event, unfortunately. And this is all playing directly into mainstream politics. Yeah. So there's an article here from Civil Service World, which is my new favorite website to go and look at. Absolutely scintillating stuff from Civil Service. Well, this is a guy from Nesta writing. Nesta, who own the Behavioural Insights team, they are pushing citizens' assemblies hard. Civil servants should embrace this. Yeah, this is the future of democracy, according to Nesta. Also plays directly into Labour policy. So this is Sue Gray, Starmer's chief of staff, former top civil servant who ran the Partygate investigation, which got Boris Johnson fired, and is often known as the woman who runs the country, interestingly, and apparently she still does think she runs the country. She says that the assemblies will get the public directly involved in deciding contentious issues such as constitutional reform. They want to get rid of the House of Lords, devolution, housing, net zero technologies, all that kind of thing. And this has been welcomed and probably ushered in in some way, actually, by this lady, Claudia Chalice, who I've spoken about previously. She's the founder of Democracy Next. They've been pushing a new way of democratizing city planning really hard. It's obviously fed into this. She's a young global leader at the Obama Foundation, so very clear left-wing ideological perspective. And Democracy Next is funded by Open Societies, George Soros, who also funded Extinction Rebellion, the Rockefeller Foundation, the One Project, and a whole bunch of these other philanthropic funds who sit behind a lot of this activity and, for my money, are really pushing to, 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 to subvert the, the democratic process in the name of democracy. It's all in the name of democracy. We're not clear exactly where they're intending to change us or what they're intending to change us into, but it's all in the name of democracy. Uh, and Debbie, uh, let's look at another massively democratic institution, uh, the MHRA. Yes, let's. Good afternoon, everyone. And today, uh, just as a little bit of a warning, I am dressed to impress. I hope you can see I have my MHRA T-shirt on. Limited edition now, collector's items for everyone. So please join my club with the T-shirt. The MHRA, Dame June Rain. Let's look at Dame June Rain. Uh, we have a nice Im uh, image, an uh, interesting hand gesture there from Dame June Rain. But let's listen to a couple of things that she has said with with the knowledge that we have now on Pfizer in particular at the Sir Alistair Breckenridge homage. Now, Sir Alistair Breckenridge was the architect of the yellow card scheme. So let's just listen to a minute or two of what Dame June said at that lecture. 
I think I can look at Samaneer with some affinity because of those long, long hours, weekends and evenings spent looking at data as soon as it appears. And it might sound so obvious to anyone not in our space that you don't wait until the package is tied up with uh, pink ribbon and delivered to you. So, as Alistair would have wished, we planned the proactive vigilance studies, this is the Pfizer vaccine as it happens, six months before approval, approval a year ago, tomorrow in fact. Six months planning ahead to those vigilance studies, just as Alison, Alistair envisaged with the Institute of Medicine's report, that would actually enable us to hit the ground running with efficient monitoring systems, giving the public that extra layer of assurance. And of course, everyone will remember that rather beautiful graph in the New England Journal paper uh, with separation of the curves around seven days. And we don't often see efficacy of that level. We certainly hadn't expected it. Uh, we spent a long time in our regulatory discussions talking about maybe 50%. And so that hope that came from that level of efficacy was truly, truly inspirational. So she was hitting the ground running then and she's hitting the ground running now because for those of you who may not be aware, she's announced that she's stepping down. Uh, she'll be stepping down as chief executive of the MHRA um, after five years in the role. And the announcement goes on to say that um, she'll be she'll be still there until August. So uh, perhaps we should put an, a notice of liability into her whilst on in, in, email it into her whilst she's still in post. But I want to bring to your attention um, Graham Stringer, MP. Now, Graham Stringer, MP, he's Blackley and Broughton or Broughton. I do apologise if I've pronounced either of those incorrectly. But he's written a letter in reply to Steve Brine's original letter where he had all the MPs uh, sign concerns over the MHRA. Now, part one of that letter I wrote about in my blog on the 13th of February. So for those of you who want to look at that, please go to that blog. Let's see what it says. So it says about raising concerns about the MHRA. And if we go to the next slide, um, he says that there's reason to believe that the MHRA was aware of a signal for post-vaccination myocarditis and pericarditis in February 2021. Um, he also talks about um, the fact that the MHRA failed to mention it, um, despite a thorough review. If we go on to the next slide, we can also see that he was making comments on threats that he had heard that had been made to the Telegraph with regards to their coverage of the AstraZeneca uh, serious adverse reaction of blood clots. Um, now, this is a very interesting point because I actually sent in an FOI direct to Dame June Rain with regards to this, had a senior member of the MHRA phoned the Telegraph and threatened them, told them to soften the news, told them that they would be banned from press briefings. My question there is, is in italics. And then um, on the next slide, you'll see that they very, very directly say, having reviewed our records for this date, uh, for this date and to the best of our knowledge, we have no evidence that any phone call of this nature took place. So the Telegraph are still publishing um, about serious adverse reactions. Uh, yesterday and a couple of days ago, the medical regulator failed to sound the alarm over COVID vaccine side effects 
and should be investigated. And they went on to say, um, I, I won't read out the whole slide, it's just to give you an example of what they were saying about uh, the MHRA being responsible for approving drugs but failing to sound the alarm. So, you know, when it comes to patient safety, we have to look at who's in charge of patient safety at the MHRA. And of course, that's Dr. Alison Cave. So let's remind ourselves of what Alison Cave gets paid. She's the highest paid member of the team at the MHRA on a nice £195,000 a year. But has she not read the Pfizer documents analysis? Has she not been to our Pfizer situation room or has she not even looked at her yellow card data? That would be my question for um, Alison Cave. And, you know, despite all of this, there are still COVID vaccines being rolled out. Um, just a couple of days ago, MHRA approved Comorati uh, and Nuvaxoid. This means that these uh, approvals have been reapproved, if you like, to enable re-relabeling and rethawing outside of the NHS. But Dame Alison Cave is very busy rolling those out, uh, not uh, not looking at serious adverse reactions of the injection. But she's very concerned about codeine, and this is what she's been doing. She's been taking codeine linctus off our pharmaceutical shelves because it's now being reclassified to prescription only because of risk of abuse and addiction. And if we go and look at the MHRAs, uh, well, sorry, yes, I'll just give you a quote from Dr. Alison Cave, because we must remind ourselves patient safety is our top priority. And that's what Dr. Alison Cave says about codeine. She doesn't seem to be saying the same about um, the COVID-19 vaccines. However, if we go to the MHRA website, we can see there, those are the brands that you can expect to see disappearing off your shelves. So those are the actual brand, brand names. But let's look at the serious adverse reactions of codeine. And I was um, quite surprised there, or maybe not surprised, to see that they have accelerated. You can see they've risen since the uh, rollout of the injection. Now, whether this or not is linked, I don't know. Whether they're apportioning things to codeine, I don't know. However, what did strike me was this announcement, and I hadn't seen it before on the MHRA website. This is very important. Risks and benefits of medicines. For a medicine to be considered safe, the expected benefits of the medicine will be greater than the risks of suffering harmful reactions. This is what Cheryl was saying last week. I don't see a book of benefits with regards to the COVID-19 injections. However, I see plenty of evidence to the risks. It also says all, all, med, all medicines can cause reactions. It also says two down at the bottom, it, if a new side effect is identified, information is carefully considered in context of the overall side effect profile for the medicine and how it compares with other medicines used to treat the same condition. It also says the MHRA will take action. Thus far, I don't see the MHRA taking any action at all. Oh, well, they certainly are taking action, uh, Debbie. So let's have a look at some of the action that they're taking. They're shortening timeframes. Uh, and what are they shortening timeframes about? Well, it's about uh, the uh, process changes for the assessment of established medicines in this case. Uh, the changes will enable the agency to assess applications more efficiently, helping to ensure a smoother and more rapid approvals process for applicants. Applicants, of course, are pharmaceutical companies that want their products on the shelves. Uh, so let's see what they're saying. 
Uh, established medicines include products that are not new active substances or line extensions to new active substances. This process change applies specifically to chemical products, i.e. it excludes so-called biosimilars. And they say that the timely processing of marketing authorization applications for established medicines of the highest importance, because otherwise, how could the pharmaceutical companies make the profits that they do? Uh, the, measures of the, the measures the MHRA is putting in place are already resulting in significant improvements uh, to whom? Well, for the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, and the agency will continue to publish monthly updates providing applicants, the pharmaceutical companies, with transparent information on expected timescales. So if you're a member of the public and you're worried about safety, don't worry that uh, th there's a safety issue or not. Uh, the pharmaceutical companies are making sure they get the full reporting, uh, whereas we don't. Uh, but let's not leave it there because uh, they've decided that they're really proud that they've managed to, uh, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce this, ex-Java perhaps, uh, has been approved in 30 days. So let's just have a look and see what the statement they said here. Uh, the new formula for ex-Java, uh, which is uh, denosumab, uh, a treatment used in adults to prevent serious bone-related complications caused by bone metastasis uh, is and to treat giant cell tumor of bone in adults and adolescents is the first product to be authorized by the MHRA via the new international regulation procedure. Now, this is something that Debbie has talked about before, and this is basically where the MHRA says, well, uh, somebody else has approved it already, so that's good enough for us, uh, so we'll approve it uh, by default. Uh, so they went on to say this, if we put that back on screen, uh, the product was authorized in 30 days, providing UK patients with earlier access to this treatment thanks to international recognition. In this case, the recognition was from the FDA. So there we go. Great job the MHRA is doing, but it's a great job for the pharmaceutical in industry uh, and not uh, for us, the general public. Okay, let's uh, move on. If you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, uh, please have a look at support.ukcolumn.org. Uh, and all the various options for helping us out are there. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK Column shop, including the last few remaining MHRA not fit for purpose t-shirts uh, with June Rain uh, on, on there. But uh, of course, she will be leaving soon. Uh, we did make the point on Wednesday. I was very disappointed nobody uh, came back to me with any positive suggestions here uh, that uh, this is the second time that we've produced a, 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 a t-shirt and uh, suddenly the person or one of the pe people featured on it uh, in the first case, it was the Variants of Concern t-shirt, and that was Matt Hancock, uh, basically disappeared uh, pretty soon after the t-shirts became available. We're asking for uh, new design ideas. If there's somebody else you want to see shifted from their job, uh, clearly all we need to do is to produce, produce a t-shirt for it, and it'll happen. So, so send your ideas to us. Uh, I, I we'll move on and say uh, do share various material on the platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Now, Debbie uh, mentioned this a second ago, but Dr. Tess Laurie is uh, tweeting this out. If you have been harmed in any way by the COVID injections, uh, you may wish to send June Rain a notice of liability before she leaves office. Uh, Rain received our urgent report on the COVID vaccines in June 2021. Despite this, she continued to enable the mass deployment of these inadequately tested experimental and fundamentally unsafe COVID-19 injections without informed consent on the people of the UK, including our children. Uh, pregnant women and our most vulnerable. Uh, so there's a link uh, on that tweet to a report from Tess Laurie and uh, well, you can find out more about that there. Um, just another reminder that uh, David Siegel will be running a climate science masterclass with us beginning in March. Uh, tickets are available now. It is uh, a paid for event, but uh, 
do join us for that. That'll be 12 uh, 90-minute sessions over 12 weeks. Uh, so do, do join us for that. Uh, you can find out more at climatecourse.ukcolumn.org. Uh, Debbie, very briefly, uh, your latest blog is up. Yes, and for anybody that's thinking of traveling to Europe, a non-European um, citizen, you might like to check because you're going to need a visa coming up. So that and plenty more in this week's blog. Okay, thank you. And uh, the Justin Walker interview that Brian did on the Bradbury Pound is up on the UK Column website uh, now for anybody that wants to go and have a look at that. Now, let's uh, move on to the uh, farmers, uh, and particularly the European farmers. Uh, and, uh, well, sticking their fingers up at the European farmers is none other than the European Parliament. So here they are. Uh, and they have passed their nature restoration law, which is basically the fundamental underlying reason for the protests in the first place. Uh, so amongst other things, this law requires that 30% of habitats, that's forests, grasslands, wetlands, rivers, lakes, coral beds, these kinds of things, uh, need to be risen from a poor to a good condition by 2030. Uh, and of course, this means that farmers and in fact, uh, fishing fleets uh, need to be considering these things rather than food production uh, over that period of time. But it, it has to increase now to 60% by 2040 and then to 90% by 2050. Um, so here is uh, the agriculture minister from Lombardy, and this is what he had to say about it. With its ideological and extremist view, not only, uh, this is the EU that he's talking about, its ideological and extremist view, not only wants to indefinitely bury our productive agriculture system, but is also an enemy of the environment. The message of this law, in fact, is stop cultivating land, uh, and the little we allow you to do uh, will undergo more and more constraints, while countries that do not comply with the rules will take care of your food. Now, I'm going to disagree with that slightly because the point is that uh, it, countries that uh, are not complying with the rules will not necessarily be in a position to supply the food that's needed. So either uh, we're going to be eating less or we're going to be eating differently. And I think we all know that uh, the latter is much more likely uh, as they attempt to bring in much more cricket protein and other kind of insect protein into our diets. Uh, and we should not forget the UK legislation passed last year to permit the gene editing of organisms, animals and plants, uh, which will uh, you know, allow for much more factory, indoor factory type uh, production of food rather than farmland production of food. Uh, things are really coming to a head in Poland. It is quite incredible what is going on there with more daily protests now uh, the borders of Ukraine and Slovakia blocked by the farmers. Uh, but here we had uh, estimates between 10,000 and 30,000 people out on the streets of Warsaw uh, over the last couple of days. Let's just have a look. Oh, sorry, let's just have a look at uh, at the uh, video, which if I can get it to play, uh, which apparently I can't. But anyway, you can see the uh, you can see the the scale of the numbers of people there. That the the the, uh, the demonstration went on for a great distance. Uh, if we look at this uh, from notes from Poland, Polish farmers have begun blockading the border with Slo Slovakia, uh, which they say is being used to bring Ukrainian product produce into Poland by passing the blockade of the border with Ukraine. On Friday, they also plan to start a blockade of the border with Lithuania. So the issue here is that there are two main uh, areas of protest in Poland. One is the EU legislation, which has just passed. And the other is the fact that uh, uh, grain is coming in from Ukraine uh, into Poland and the grain is of low quality and low cost and is undercutting uh, Polish grains. 
uh, and therefore uh, they are effectively being put out of business by this. Um, now, uh, they have been taking some direct action as well as the peaceful demonstration. Uh, and uh, Ukraine has been going, and Zelensky in particular, has been going absolutely nuts over this. Um, so Ukraine condemns dumping of grain transiting through Poland, says notes from Poland and, and many other mainstream uh, media and alternative media from Poland as well. So uh, keep an eye on what's going on there. They are getting support from Germany and other countries, uh, but keep an eye on that. Meanwhile, uh, in Ukraine itself, uh, the Ukrainian government getting really upset about the position that they're in. Uh, and this is kind of related. If we just do a quick translation on this, this is from the Ukrainian Center for Combating Disinformation. Uh, and it's, they're talking about the uh, statement of the Intelligence Committee under the president of Ukraine. So let's just have a look at the final paragraph of this. They say, in view of the above circumstances, we appeal to Ukraine society, our international partners and allies to strengthen joint resistance and comprehensive security measures, especially in the information space, in order to effectively counter global threats and challenges of a new global hybrid war, the war that the Russian Federation and its criminal allies are waging against the entire civilized world today. They're calling a, a global hybrid war. Our society needs unity. So they're very concerned that farmers are getting worried about grain coming across uh, the, uh, the border. They're also very worried about the fact that they are losing the war and that that is uh, becoming public knowledge. Uh, so they're demanding that international partners shut down discourse on this. Uh, quite an incredible situation and quite an incredible situation in Poland with the farmers. So keep an eye on it. Um, OK, let's move on. Uh, ben, um, Debbie has mentioned ARIA before, but uh, you've got more on it. I do indeed. And just listening just to the segments today, it strikes me that um, there is a war going on. There's a war going on between the old world and the new world. Yeah, we've got new new forms of democracy, new forms of healthcare, new forms of farming, and uh, they seem to serve the purpose of the people in power, not the people on the street, unfortunately. And where does all this new stuff come from? It comes from places like Aria which uh, is the Advanced Research and Invention Agency. Um, this was the brainchild of, of Dominic Cummings when he was in number 10. It's modelled on DARPA, uh, the American institution which invented the internet, RNA vaccines, weaponized drones, just three examples. And this is an £800 million fund, and it's here to empower scientists to reach for the edge of the possible Interestingly, they define success as shaped by one question. When the children of the UK grow up, how will their lives have been transformed by Aria's work? Now, we can interpret that in a number of ways, but from where I'm sitting, it doesn't sound entirely positive. Now, it's run by these two gentlemen. This guy, Matt Clifford, who's the chairman who also founded something called Entrepreneur First, which basically gets top-tier grads from Oxbridge and elsewhere into the big tech ecosystem. He was also the Prime Minister's Sherpa to the AI Summit at Bletchley Park last year, so he's quite a top-level character, former McKinsey consultant as well. And it's run by this guy, Elan Gurr, Dr. Elan Gurr, should I say, who is an Israeli-American. I don't know why we couldn't find an Englishman or a Brit to run this. It seems ridiculous. And he's also a member of the Atlantic Council, whose mission is shaping the global future. Right? So that's 
Mr. Gers, or sorry, should I say Dr. Gers, provenance. Now, let's hear from him about where he sees the real challenges facing the British people. What kind of stuff are we talking about? Are we talking about like, are you framing a, uh, an idea as we're going to cure cancer, or is is that like is that like a broad is that too broad? Or what kind of like what kind of ideas? So when they announced Matt and my appointments, we basically said, hey, we're open to people suggesting hosting a roundtable where we just brainstorm where could RA be transformational. One of the roundtables I'll point to that sticks with me is if you look at climate change. Uh, a significant amount of global greenhouse gas emissions comes from the agricultural sector. Uh, actually, less from CO2 uh, and more from methane. The biggest source of methane emissions is cow burps. Number one challenge facing Aria is methane emissions from cows. You heard it here first, people. But there's good news. Because Google just this week, as an aside, has announced a global tracking mechanism for keeping tabs on methane sources. Yeah, so we just click on, there's a little visual you can see. They've got a satellite, an AI driven satellite, which is going to fly around looking for sources of methane. So, gentlemen, if you feel the urge to let out a top or indeed a bottom burp, know this you are being observed. By Google, ladies, that doesn't apply to you because all you all know you don't do that kind of thing. Where does now, that leave the House of Commons? <laughs> I think that might destroy the uh, destroy the satellite. <laughs> um, Sorry, where was I? No, 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 that's fine. I'm just talking about farts on UK column news. Hey, everyone. Um, so, uh, what else is on the agenda at Ario? You've got programmable plants genetic engineering for food, but also so that plants are able to provide a thriving and sustainable biosphere for future generations, which is what I thought plants were already doing. But apparently, Aria need to intervene in that. We also have precision interfaces between the human and digital technology. So this is the kind of Neuralink stuff that Elon Musk is promoting. Um, there's another program director focused on managing our climate and weather through responsible engineering, um, which actually is completely nuts. If you go and read on the ARIA blog, you can, they have a substack, ariaresearch.substack.com, and also you can go to aria.org.uk. You can read a bit more about the different programs. This weather one in particular is crazy, the way that they're talking about it. The Times picked up on it and basically pointed out that there was some significant there was significant potential for unintended consequences, right? And, and I think that's probably the case across the board with each of these. Now, each of those, that's just three of the program directors. There were eight in total. Each of them have been given 50 million quid of your money, my money, this is all taxpayer funded, to distribute as they see fit. And they engage with the research ecosystem in a number of different ways. Let's hear from Dr. Gurr again. ARIA can fund based on a number of different mechanisms, not just research grants, investments, prizes. ARIA can set up subsidiaries if that's what's needed to move one of these visions forward. It can fund research outside of the UK. This is actually, for me, really important. One of the, one of the I think, the important um, just sort of characteristics of ARIA needs to be 
a laser focus on how we can get massive benefits for the UK and a recognition that the way to do that is to be globally minded in reach and ambition. And then maybe the most important one is the, the ARIA Act actually gives ARIA and signals for everyone this, sh this should be an experiment with sort of a decadal time constant and time horizon for impact. And so Parliament basically said uh, the government can't shut down ARIA and actually shouldn't evaluate seriously ARIA's progress until 10 years. So there's a few really interesting things that he just mentioned in there. The first one that really jumped out at me was that they're not actually interested in the UK at all. They see this as a global investment fund. So the idea that this is necessarily going to benefit British people is a bit far-fetched, given what he's just said. The timeline thing, I think, is correct. Um, real innovation takes between five to seven years to have a real impact on an organization. So I think that that makes sense. Um, but what he referred to is the fact that actually ARIA is completely independent. So it was founded based on this government statute, I think I'm using the right term here, which is the independence of the Advanced Research and Invention Agency document. It's a memorandum of understanding between the different heads of state across the UK. And this is basically about maximizing strategic and operational autonomy so they can do whatever they want and minimizing bureaucracy and oversight. So we can't actually go and have a look at what's going on there. Um, they do have a board and there's a few interesting people to, to just pick out here. So the first one is Kate Bingham who's a venture capitalist and was also the former chair of the Vaccine Task Force. She was the person responsible for working with the MHRA to get those vaccines into people's arms really quickly. Also, Paddy Valance, Sir Paddy Valance, should I say, former chief scientific advisor, mitts all over COVID, now working with the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, just announced this week. So Blair is represented on this board in some capacity. Lovely little quote here from Mike Yaden. Thank you, Mike, um, who actually knows Pat Valance, and apparently he's an idiot. So that's good to know. Um, outside of the board, uh, we have uh, an advisory group, um, which includes, I'm just going to put a couple in here. You should go to the ARIA website to check this out for yourself. Demis Hassavis, who is the DeepMind CEO, which is the Google artificial intelligence play. Tony Blair described him as our Demis. Right. So apparently Tony Blair thinks he owns this guy. Um, and then finally, um, and I guess poetically, uh, given what we've just been talking about with the MHRA, Ozelm Terecci, who is the founder of BioNTech, who basically is, is one of the people most responsible for the Pfizer vaccines that have caused so much damage that we talk about on a regular basis on this show. And these are the people overseeing the use of £800 million worth of public funds designed to transform the lives of British children. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, indeed. Thank you, Ben. And uh, Debbie, uh, let's move on to smart meters. Oh, yes, let's move on to smart meters. So um, apparently smart meters, we've all been bombarded, haven't we, by our energy companies? Will we change our meters Let's get into this because according to this money, and bearing in mind this was in 2022, this is going to be a very expensive exercise because most of the smart meters or a lot of them that have been installed are going to be obsolete um, because they won't be able to cope with 4G or 5G. They can only operate on 2G and 3G. It's cost 11 billion so far. So um, apparently a lot of them are going to need to be replaced. So let's go and have a look at what the House of Commons says, the House of Commons Committee of Public Accounts the update on the rollout of smart meters. And they talk about the replacement 
of smart meters. So they say that rep replacing non-functioning smart meters, March 2023, 3 million smart meters weren't working properly, 1 million of the new installations weren't commissioned when installed, and 600,000 um, were, were, not, were not proceeded because due to the switching process, of energy switching process. They also said that 7 million hubs will be needed to be replaced ahead of 2033 because of this 4 and 5G compatibility. It's going to cost £2 per household, and that's going to cost you. It's going to be your money. And then the last slide on that, really, I'll let you uh, go back and read this slide, but it's upgrading basically the first generation of smart meters. But you know what? Let's listen to what EDF have to say, because at the end of the day, there's a lot of myths, aren't there, about smart meters. So let's hear them debunk some of them. A lot of people get confused between their smart meters and their in-home displays. This is a smart meter. Once you have it installed, it will go where your old meter previously was. The smart meter will automatically send us your gas and electricity readings, so you don't have to. And that will mean that you'll get accurate bills. This is an in-home display. It's not a smart meter. It's simply a small digital display that will show you in real time your energy usage and your costs. Let's debunk some myths. Smart meters don't use Wi-Fi to send your data. Every smart meter has its own SIM card. It will send your meter readings remotely through a safe and secure data network. Because of this, smart meters shouldn't cause any issues or delays with your Wi-Fi connection. We understand installing new technology in your home can sometimes be a bit daunting, but your smart meter isn't a spy. Smart meters can't hear anything or see anything. The only information that a smart meter will collect is how much energy you're using. The data we receive from your smart meter will be used to provide you with an accurate bill. We won't give your data to anyone else without your consent. Your personal details such as your name, address and bank account details aren't stored or transmitted by your smart meter. Smart meters have been extensively tested for your safety. They passed all the UK and EU regulations that make sure a product is safe. These are the same regulations that your TV, your microwave and your mobile phone will have had to have passed too. So essentially, your smart meter is just as safe as your mobile phone. This isn't true. You can still get a smart meter if you're renting. Just make sure you get your landlord's permission before installing one. There are many benefits to installing a smart meter, from taking control of your energy bills to the environmental benefits. One of the biggest selling points of a smart meter is that they do the hard work for you. There's a couple of interesting points there, Debbie. The first is smart meter is not a spy. That's a complete lie. And we'll talk about a little bit more about that in extra. Uh, but uh, uh, the other thing uh, that she said has completely gone out of my mind. So, so over to you again. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I mean, how do you get a smart meter? And I quite agree with you. They're, they're spies. And yes, there's a lot to say about this. But how do you get one? So go to the Ofgem website and it'll tell you exactly how to get a smart meter. Um, they'll also tell you that um, you can go to this Smart Energy GB website. We'll come on to that in a minute. This is the generation of new smart meters. If you jump to the next slide again, you'll see that you don't actually have to have a smart meter, but once you've got one, you're gonna keep it. I can tell you that for nothing, uh, but we'll come on to that in a minute. Your data will be used, but only with your permission. Um, so a lot, 
a lot of information there to process. But who is, oh yes, of course, Einstein. Who remembers the Einstein adverts of go get a smart meter? This is the, this is the website that they were referring to, this smart meter website. I haven't, I haven't bothered with one of the Einstein adverts because I'm sure you've seen enough of those. But let's go to the guide for households. So a guide for households really says that, uh, this is gov.uk, it says smart meters put consumers in control. Well, actually, I disagree with that and say that um, it puts the energy companies in control. Let's look and see what they say about security. Um, so you get, a, you get a smart meter uh, from any of your energy suppliers, but let's see who it's being developed by. And this really shocked me. Well, it didn't shock me, but it did to see it in writing. The National Smart Metering Infrastructure has been developed from the outset in consultation with experts from industry and government, including the National Cyber Security Centre, part of Government Communication Headquarters, GCHQ. So smart meters, surveillance meters or spy meters? Good question, eh? What about health? Because uh, according to the government, there's no evidence that smart meters pose any risk to health. Uh, and according to the UK HSA, but I mean, we've heard this from the MHRA. We've heard of no need to worry about safety, no need to worry about risks. Well, should we? If we go to one peer-reviewed paper, and I've just taken this one as an example, Electromagnetic Radiation Safety, Dr. Joel Moscovich, uh, he's at Berkeley. Um, he says that this does exist. Electro-hypersensitivity does exist. Not everybody is electrosensitive, but this advanced metering infrastructure, which is basically smart meters, um, he says that those that become ill should have the ability to opt out. But the problem is, it's a benefit for the con for the utility company, not the consumer. So let's just go and look at GCHQ website, because, uh, or, or the National Cyber Security Center, should I say, because I, I think it's really important we look at what is actually behind this smart metering system. And this is Dr. Ian Levy, Levy explaining the design considerations that underpin the smart metering systems. So if we go further on, we can see that it's the Department of Energy and Climate Change, um, together with GCHQ, who have designed this system. Now, this is a system, not just a collection of meters, and they make that very plain that this is a system. If we jump on one from there, we'll see a diagram. Now, I'm sure Michael wants to talk about this more in extra, because that's your house on the left, and it's going to need some explanation, which I will leave for Mike to explain more in extra. But you can see the gateway pathways there from your house, from your hub in your house that goes all the way to your energy suppliers, which also provides your network operators with the data and your data will go to third parties. So I, I wanted to know, can we get rid of them? Can we get rid of them? I, I went to a Telegraph article, ask an expert, can I get rid of my smart meter. And according to this article, there's actually no reason why anybody would want to get one removed. Um, excuse me, I think there are. But they say that you can put your meter means that you have to read it, that the energy company won't automatically have the reading. So it's less convenient for the consumer. So I chose um, a website, a blog really, a consumer blog called First Electricians. Um, they call themselves the number one source to find top electricians. You can see their website address there. And I just went to there to see 
what they were saying. Can an electrician remove a smart meter? No. Basically, no, they can't. It has to be uh, an approved electrician from the energy company. Can you remove a smart meter once one is installed? Pretty much no. It's really, really difficult to get one removed. You can sometimes on health grounds if you get a doctor's letter, but it's not for the faint-hearted. You're also not allowed to tamper with them, and it's immediately a legal matter. I went on then to see what would happen if somebody disconnected one. Well, disconnecting one, they say, could lead to serious consequences, i.e. it's illegal or considered illegal, considered a theft of services because the equipment belongs to the energy company. Uh, they say in the UK, it's also against the law and can result in legal action from your energy supplier. And I believe this is true in the United States as well. So smart meters, like traditional meters, are the property of the utility company. Therefore, unauthorized removal of a smart meter is typically illegal. But there's a lot to say, because is it a deal breaker? If you're buying a house or you're renting, are you asking before you're viewing, does that property have a smart meter? And if it does and you can't get it removed, will you move? Lots of questions to maybe talk about in extra. Yes, good. Okay, thank you, Debbie. Now, uh, you found a little bit of video uh, recently and that uh, involved Ted Ross from the World Health Organization and from the United Nations. Uh, just give us an introduction to this. Little introduction, I suddenly saw him pop up at the United Nations Environment Summit of all places, and uh, it suddenly clicked to me. World Health Organization, not People Health Organization, not Human Health Organization, World, Planet, Earth. Let's hear what Dr. Tedros, I'm very sorry I can't pronounce his surname, I do apologize, but let's what he says about the health of the world. Climate change biodiversity loss and pollution. If our planet were a patient, it would be admitted to intensive care. Its vital signs are alarming. It's running a fever. With each of the last nine months, the hottest on record. as we hurtle towards the 1.5 degree threshold. Its lung capacity is compromised with the destruction of forests that absorb carbon dioxide and produce oxygen. And many of the eldest water sources, its lifeblood, are contaminated. Most concerning of all, its condition is deteriorating rapidly. Is it any wonder then that human health is suffering when the health of the planet on which we depend is in peril? More frequent and severe weather events cause deaths and injuries, as you know, and damage to health facilities and other essential infrastructure. More heat, wave, heat waves contribute to more cardiovascular disease. Air pollution drives lung cancer, asthma, and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Chemicals such as lead cause intellectual disability, cardiovascular, and kidney disease. 
and drought and water scarcity affect food production, making healthy diets less affordable. Meanwhile, climate change is leading to shifts in the behavior, distribution, movement, range, and intensity of mosquitoes, birds, and other animals that are spreading infectious diseases such as dengue and malaria to new areas. Illegal wildlife trading also increases the risk of zoonotic spillover that can trigger a pandemic, highlighting the importance of primary prevention to reduce risk. World health, world health, not our health. This is all about world health, hence World Health Organization. Why didn't I hear it or see it before? Yeah. Okay. Good point. Okay. Thank you, Debbie. And uh, Ben, just very quickly, uh, Elon Musk has launched a camp uh, a legal action. He has, yeah. So just following on from the piece that I did last week focused on AI, uh, I said in that session last week that Musk was one of the original investors in OpenAI. He put $100 million into it on the basis that it was going to be creating artificial intelligence for the benefit of the whole of humanity. And obviously, OpenAI has now cut a big deal with Microsoft, and Musk has uh, is suing um, OpenAI and Greg Brockman, who's the president of OpenAI in the US. Uh, he says that OpenAI Inc. has been transformed into a closed source, de facto subsidiary of the largest technology company in the world, Microsoft, under its new board. It's not just developing, but is actually refining an AGI to maximize profits for Microsoft rather than the benefit of humanity. Contrary to the founding agreement, defendants have chosen to use GPT-4 not for the benefit of humanity, but as proprietary technology to maximize profits for literally the largest company in the world. Um, so interesting to see how this plays out. I don't see Musk as some kind of white knight in this situation, um, but uh, this kind of big tech soap opera is certainly keeping a lot of people engaged and entertained right now. So we'll see how that develops. Yeah, okay. Brilliant. Thank you, Ben. Okay, well, look, we've got to leave it there for today. I'm going to say thank you very much uh, to Ben and to Debbie and to everybody who's been watching. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes uh, if you're a UK column member for some extra. Uh, otherwise, we'll see you at 1pm as usual on Monday. Hope you have a great weekend. Bye-bye.